Good evening, everybody. Let's start with our motivation. It's always a good place to start. And begin by appreciating having our precious human life and access to the Dharma. Appreciating our interest in the Dharma. The fact that we've met teachers and have books that we can read and Dharma friends to talk to. That we live in a place where there is a monastic community. Because the presence of the monastic community is what determines whether a place is a central land or not, a place where the Dharma is flourishing. So take a moment and appreciate your good conditions and reflect what it would be like not to have them. You were suddenly born in the animal realm with so much confusion and ignorance, difficult to think clearly, or born in a place where there's no dharma, there's tremendous social upheaval and warfare so very difficult just to stay alive let alone follow your spiritual yearnings so really you know appreciate our present circumstances and have a strong determination to use them wisely and not waste them away in complaining and self-pity and things like that. But to really open our hearts to other living beings, recognize that they have feelings too, just like us, And when wanting ourselves to have the joy of full enlightenment, extending that to all those other beings too. Because they're no different from us, not wanting suffering and yet wanting happiness. So transform your mind into a joyful mind that is excited about the opportunity of hearing teachings and practicing. And then let's do that together. a little girl I can't remember what birthday it was some birthday then I had a birthday party and at the end of uh, the day there was uh, in my room there was a little space between the bed and the wall and I crawled in that space between the bed and the wall and laid on the floor and cried at the end of my birthday after this wonderful birthday party with all my friends that my parents had gone 
to so much expense and you know loving care to have and I cried and I cried because it was going to be a whole year before I had another birthday okay this is called spoiled <laughs> yeah but uh, I watch how often in our lives when we have very good opportunities we crawl in our little space between the bed and the wall and lie on the floor and cry you know because we want an even better opportunity than we already have and because we feel life has been unfair to us life has treated other people better than it has treated us we have more problems than they do whenever I tried to complain about that my mother would look at me I really need to write a book about my mother's sayings whenever I was there you know just oh but mom this is so unfair these people have it and I don't I have the more problem and she would look at me and say what do you want a trophy <laughs> So, of course, that wasn't what I wanted to hear. But I look back now, and I just really see, you know, that she was, she read me. You know, yes, Mom, actually, I do want a trophy. <laughs> yeah, the world owes me much more than it's giving me. And I have all these problems and nobody else has and it's not fair and yes if you could make a trophy about this big you know with one of these big you know things and underneath it it says cherry has suffered more than anybody else and give it to me and I could place it on my nightstand then I would be happy <laughs> yeah so uh you know, if, if we look sometimes about the way our self-centered mind focuses, it's, it's like this, isn't it? It's like this, you know. My mother had me pinned. Yeah, I want a, a, a trophy for my suffering. You know, now I can look at it and, you know, laugh at that time. Oh, she doesn't understand me. Actually, she understood me very well. Yeah. She understood me very well. She wasn't going to put up with any of my nonsense. Yeah. Her, another one of her famous ones, when I was, you know, moping around and she said, she said, you better stop there or I'll really give you something to cry about. <laughs> Did you, you heard that one too? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But again, it, you know, she's right. Yeah. And of course they never liked hearing those things. But years later, you know, I can look back and say, well, yeah, you know, I'm sitting there 
just enveloped in myself and not seeing anything else but me and having absolutely no consideration for anybody else around me at all. You know, just parents, society, teachers, they're all supposed to make the world the way I want it to be. Right? Right? Yeah, they're older, they're, they're better than me. They should make the world be what I want it to be. And they don't have feelings. They don't have struggles of their own. They don't need any, they don't need appreciation or love or support or encouragement. They're all basically my slaves. <laughs> okay. So when we say that the self-centered thought is our enemy, you know, we can see why. Because this thought just makes us so miserable. And it's not that we're bad because we're self-centered. It's not a question of I'm a bad person because I'm self-centered. It's I want to be happy and this way of thinking is making me miserable. And it's making everybody around me miserable. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Yeah. That's what the self-centered thought does. So that's why it's so important in thought training to recognize the self-centeredness as the enemy. Recognize it's not an inherent part of who we are. And then turn and point our finger to the self-centeredness and say, you're the problem. Yeah. And I'm not going to listen to you because every time I listen to you, you create these dramas and make me and everybody else miserable. So we have to come to that ourselves. Because other people around us may kindly try and tell us that. Like I was saying, I don't like to hear that. You know, I want some pity. But, you know, the, the way to practice Dharma is to get over this mind that wants some pity. And be able to look and see, oh, this is the cause of my problems. And I've got to be the one who solves my problems. Nobody else can solve them for me. And I can change the whole world, you know, so that everybody does what I want. And I'm still not going to be happy. Yeah, because the root of the problems is my own self-centeredness, my own ignorance. Yeah. And I'm the only one who can do something about that. So let's do something about it. Hmm? And, you know, every time, every time you're unhappy, which is, you know, maybe... <laughs> yeah, 94% of the time. But whenever the mind is unhappy, that is because there's defilement in it. So whenever you're unhappy, instead of, you know, just, oh, I'm unhappy, you know, what's happening outside or what could change to make me unhappy, to, to make me happy, to say, I'm unhappy, why? There's defilement in my mind. Yeah. My mind is under the influence of afflictions. 
what's the affliction that's manifest in my mind right now that's making me so miserable? Yeah. And so we, we have to be able to do that, to, to look and say, what's the affliction that's coming up that's making me so miserable at this minute? Okay. So let's say when you're feeling really dissatisfied, you know, <laughs> you know, you're very dissatisfied. What's the affliction in your mind? Yeah, attachment and craving. Okay. Yeah. We have a vision of what we want something to be. It's not that. And so rather than put our mind in accord with reality, the way things are, we're dissatisfied saying, but things should be the way I want them to be. Yeah. So it's attachment supported by all sorts of unrealistic expectations. Mm-hmm. So what's the antidote to that kind of attachment? What do you think? Yeah. How do you change your mind? Well, yeah. One, I really that seems to work the most right now is to think if I get the thing, is it really going to be the Okay, so the way you do it is you think if I were to get that thing, so my dissatisfaction isn't there, would it really do the job of making me satisfied and happy? And if you think about that for just a short amount of time, it becomes clear no. Yeah. What do other people do? Yeah. about impermanence that that I especially what's hard for me is when good situations end mm. I get very dissatisfied about that and very unhappy mm-hmm. falling from a God realm it's very painful actually yeah because like your joy gets cut mm-hmm. and I think that um, that's been helpful to realize that or to think that that's natural that things change it's, you know, and my mind wants it to be permanent and it expects it to be permanent. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be this way. It's so unrealistic. Yeah. So it's the impermanence, but also in the impermanence of the good things. Okay. Yeah, so you're saying that for you, this this mind comes up when you're, something good is happening and then it ends. And your mind has a temper tantrum about it because you expect this good situation to keep going on. Yeah, and and it should go on. It shouldn't end. My utopia. Yeah, my little utopia, and nobody challenge it. And so you find that when that kind of unhappiness is coming in the mind, then it's very important to remind yourself of impermanence and the fact that it's very natural that good things end. Yeah, and that dispels the expectation that a good thing will last forever. Yeah. Yeah. And what about when you're really unhappy because somebody has something that you want or you thought you were going to be the one who has it and somebody else gets it 
or you thought you were going to be the only one who has it and then you have to share it with somebody else. Okay, what's the, what's the affliction in the mind then? Jealousy. Jealousy is painful, isn't it? It's really a miserable mind. So you're jealous. So what do you do then? Yeah, so rejoice that the other person has the opportunity. And when your mind goes, but no, it's not fair. They had that opportunity. I was here first. I want it all of myself. They shouldn't have it. Then what do you do? Then I think, do I want to die with this kind of mind? Mm, then do I you, want to keep building this kind of Yeah. Do I want to die with this kind of mind? Because if I keep this mind now, I'm putting the imprints in my mind to have it for a long time. And what happens if I were to die with that, that mind? That would be bad news, wouldn't it? Yeah. The other one that's been starting to work for me is that I say to myself, you know, Senka, you've been saying that you want to benefit all sentient beings, and here's somebody's having joy in their life, and you haven't had to do a darn thing to make it happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, you know, why are you jealous? They're getting what you have said you, you yourself have wanted to aspire to be able to do. Just to yeah. Enjoy. Okay. So another way to deal with the jealousy is to say, I keep saying I want all sentient beings to be happy. Here's somebody who's happy. I didn't even have to do anything. So I'm actually getting what I want. With no effort. So why am I so miserable? Yeah, because I've been praying, may sentient beings have happiness, may sentient beings have benefit, may they have good things, may they have all, you know, good opportunities. And here somebody has that. And I didn't even have to work to make it happy happen. Yeah? I had trouble with the rejoicing working. And I think it's because it was mixed with anger. I said this before, but what I found helpful were the Nagarju verses where you said something about by becoming respectfully mindful, another one gets rid of jealousy. And what mm-hmm. happens for me with that is I realize that I'm not really taking the other person into consideration at all. And, I'm, and for me, I realize that my jealousy feels like everyone's a commodity. And then I get actually kind of disgusted at that thought. Mm-hmm. And that really helps me because I don't, I don't want to see people that way, but that's what the jealous mind does with me. You're like this commodity. I'm supposed to get this thing. Who cares about the other person who's getting it? And, I just, and what I do, actually, is I look at people. Mm-hmm. You know, and it said becoming respectfully mindful. I realize mm-hmm. I am lacking respect in, and I'm not mm-hmm. mindful of the person. I'm lost in my conceptions, and I actually force myself to look at people, and 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 then see them as a person rather than whatever the thoughts are that are swirling around in my mind. And that's yeah. how I broke it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you find that when. Uh, the jealousy is is going on that you're seeing people as commodities. They're just inanimate things there that that for your pleasure that happen to be in your way right now, you know. And that when Nagarjuna talked about being respectfully mindful, you realize that you're not looking at them with respect. You're looking at them as inanimate objects without feelings that you don't care beans about. And when you realize that that, that's the way the disturbing, you know, the self-centered mind is looking at things, 
you don't, you realize you don't want to continue that. You know, I mean, you have too much of a sense of of your own integrity to want to continue that kind of mind. So what you do is you then uh, have make sure that you look at other people and you look at them and oh, they have feelings. You know. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to bring them happiness, and it is good. Mm-hmm. Before I often before I can get to rejoicing, I also have to turn, you know, get rid of the anger underneath. So I, I mm-hmm. it really is very helpful for me to look at the good qualities of the person and really enumerate them, and look at their kindness. Mm-hmm. Really detail specific acts of their kindness, and then I can get to a place that's more loving and then can rejoice. Okay, so you find with uh, with jealousy that it's very helpful for you to think of the other person's good qualities, but especially their kindness, and then that makes it easier for you to rejoice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I also sort of similarly to Zopa have to ask like, if it actually does bring me happiness and I realize when I'm jealous or attached or clinging to something that I don't have my mind has made up this big story about my whole past um, like, oh, when I got that in the past I was happy and then I have to really check that out and when I do I realize it never worked in the first place yeah. So. yeah yeah when the mind's dissatisfied you just look in the past when I got that what happened it didn't work, otherwise I wouldn't be here <laughs> so dissatisfied right now. That's not what my mind says in the first place. No. It's like, oh, you know, that's when you were happy, so you need it again. Right. Yeah. yeah, you were happy then. Let's go back and get it. So what we're seeing is really how unrealistic our mind is. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I don't believe everything you think. But, you know, uh, to put Dharma, you know, the real Dharma practice is noticing when this is happening and then applying the antidote. It's not about memorizing lists of, you know, there's three of that and five of that and, you know, these things. All those lists and all the definitions and those things, those are all for the purpose of helping us transform our mind. Yeah. So we really have to put these things into practice. Mm-hmm. I also have just seen over time that in applying the antidotes, um, and then you get eventually the sense of how it actually does relieve your mind, mm-hmm. <laughs> that my tolerance for being in a miserable state that's self-created goes down, 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 down. Mm-hmm. So even though I can find myself heading in a habitual direction more and more frequently, I want to head it off sooner because after a while it's no longer a habit that feels familiar and comfortable anymore. Right. Yeah. But it takes... Right. So as you get used to practicing the antidotes and you watch how they work and how your mind changes, you get tired. Well, you realize that it's your own way of thinking that's making you miserable and you get tired of being miserable. So when you notice that way of thinking, you catch it sooner. Yeah, because you want to be happy. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say that I have to thank you for teaching us this because, you know, I struggled for about a year and a half sitting here when you would teach this stuff and I would just, was not doing well. <laughs> so when I come through it, and then the other day I had to lead the long run on the advantages of cherishing others. And it was such a wonderful experience because I kind of just pretended like, you know, pretended like we were 
the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and, and like everything we saw, we saw through those kind of eyes. Yeah. And it was so amazing. It's like all the points came to life. You, know, mm-hmm. like you could just imagine how the world would be transformed. And you could see how a person could actually, by, by actually cherishing others, that how everything in your day and everything that rippled out from you mm-hmm. really, really would be amazingly powerful. Yeah. And, and I never could even imagine that before. Mm-hmm. I, don't think I, I don't know why, but I never could have done that before because I think I had to really see all the disadvantages or something. I don't know what, but mm-hmm. it was really, really uplifting and, and I think um, something I, I have to really thank you for staying <laughs> hammer, 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 hammer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But ju- just what you said about that—you you saw that when you could actually focus on cherishing others and imagine going through your whole day cherishing others, that your own mind was very happy. Yeah. Just to be able to do that in a meditation session, even though I can't do it outside of it, but just to be able to do it once, it's very helpful for, mm-hmm. the, for knowing it's possible. For knowing it's possible. Yeah. You know, that you can make your attitude change. Yes. I also was going to say that um, something that helps is if I am able to identify and label the afflictive state I'm in, like we're doing now, like, well, that's jealousy, that's attachment, that's anger, and then bring to mind either a time in the past when I have been jealous or a time when I have seen someone else be jealous, mostly someone else, (laughs) and I say, oh, I don't want to be like that at all. This is kind of a gross feeling for me, and I've seen what it does for others. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Whenever we see people doing things that we don't like, it's very good to to say to ourselves, that's what I look like when I'm doing that. Yeah. Okay, this will be the last one. Actually, the very first teaching I ever got from you was the Wheel of Sharp Weapons, and that this is the Wheel of Sharp Weapons returning. Yes. Is the best. <laughs> of, of recognizing that whatever misery I'm experiencing is because I already created a cosmos. Yeah. And it starts right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whatever misery I'm creating is coming from my own mind. Yeah. And so much the misery that we have, you know, my mother, one of my mother's things was, this should be the worst thing that happens to you. Yeah. You know, we see what, what we get so unhappy and bent out of shape about. And then just think of what other people are experiencing, and may this be the worst thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to come back to the tenth ground bodhisattvas who have developed all of what we're talking about. They've developed this in their mind. So their minds are completely transformed and they walk around. Everybody they see, they see with kindness. They, they have a mind that cherishes others. Their whole focus is how can I be of benefit? Yeah. And they're meditating on the nature of reality so they don't see things as so cut and dried and concrete. They see things as, you know, 
due, due to causes and conditions arising and passing away, arising and passing away, not as solid things under their own power. Okay, so this is the mind of the tenth Bodhi, tenth Bhumi Bodhisattva. So we were talking about uh, them before. So we're on the, the section right now in the tenth ground about the mode of taking fruitional rebirth on the tenth ground. <clears throat> so it says, having taken birth as Maha, Maheshvara, the king of the gods in the highest land, one affects the welfare of sentient beings. In this way, Nagarjuna's precious garland says, the rain of excellent doctrine falls. The Bodhisattva is consecrated with light rays by the Buddha. Isn't that beautiful? They said that they, the, that Bodhisattva, the tenth ground, gets uh, is diffused or, or f- infused with light rays from the Buddha. Through the maturation of these qualities, the Bodhisattva becomes a master of the gods of pure abode. He or she is a supreme great lord, master of the sphere of infinite wisdom. So the pure abode is the highest of the four realm gods. Um, yeah, and it's also uh, the pure abode is where uh, lots of uh, arhats are, uh, you know, where beings are, you know, are becoming uh, um, are becoming arhats, and the pure abode is also referring to a bodhisattva's pure land. I think, you know, where they're going to attain enlightenment. So there is a reason for calling this ground the, uh, the cloud of doctrine because just as a worldly harvest increases when the rain clouds gather in the sky and rain falls, so the clouds of doctrine such as the retentions and meditative stabilizations gather in the mental continuum of the tenth ground bodhisattva which is like the sky and the rain of doctrine falls, increasing the collection of the marvelous harvest of virtues in the continuums of trainees. And for this reason, it is called cloud of doctrine. One sentence. Okay. So we got the part that just as a worldly harvest increases when the rain clouds come and the rain falls. Okay. So in the, this bodhisattva's mind, which is like the sky, which means it's empty of true existence, gather the clouds of the meditative stabilizations, like these different concentrations, like when we read in the Heart Sutra, the concentration of the profound illumination, these kinds of things. And then the different retentions. Retentions are, are, um, are different. What, is, what do I have here? Mm-hmm. Oh, their mindfulness and wisdom. Uh, concomitant with serenity. That's what the retentions are. The mindfulness and wisdom that are concomitant with serenity. So it's when you have serenity with mindfulness and wisdom. Okay, so you, okay, so those are the retentions. So when all these good qualities are gathering in the mind of the tenth crown bodhisattva, which is empty like the sky, then from that the rain of doctrine falls. Just like in our prayer when we request teachings, may that we're asking that the rain of the Dharma fall. Okay, so the rain of the Dharma falls, and it it increases the collection of the marvelous harvest of virtues in the continuum of trainees, which means that that bodhisattva teaches the Dharma and then the virtues in the minds of all the people who they're teaching the Dharma to. Those virtues really increase, and you have an abundant harvest of virtue in the minds of the 
trainees that you're that you're teaching. Okay, and Maitreya's ornament for the Mahayana Sutra says, because like a rain cloud, the two pervade. Uh, the doctrine, like the sky, it is cloud called the cloud of Dharma. So the two here can refer either to the retentions and meditative stabilization or to love and compassion. And Nagarjuna's praise of the element says, the stainless body which has this nature of wisdom arising everywhere from the retentions of the Buddhas equal to the sky is a cloud of doctrine. I think we need teachings on some of these verses. Yeah. Okay, so now we're on Buddhahood. We're progressing. <laughs> okay, so this explanation of the effect ground has three parts, the definitions, divisions, and the modes of actualizing the effect. So the definition, the definition of a Buddha ground Okay, is posited as a final exalted wisdom which possesses the supreme of all aspects. So it possesses all the, all the good qualities. And they say that uh, when you study the perfection of wisdom, there's 173 aspects, so it possesses the supreme of all of them. And the definition of a Mahayana path of no more learning is posited as a Mahayana clear realizer which has abandoned exhaustively the two obscurations. Okay, so uh, so we'll continue on here. So a Mahayana clear realizer, so it's a realization, you know, that has completely abandoned the two obscurations, afflictive and cognitive obscurations. Okay. Also, the two, Buddha ground and Mahayana path of no more learning, are synonymous. So is that clear? Yeah, if you're a Buddha, you're on the fifth path, the path of no more learning. It's the same thing. In brief, whatever is a Mahayana ground which has completed all the good qualities of separation from faults, such as the ten, and, and then... Um, okay, who's completed all the good qualities of separation from faults. I don't think this is what it's worded properly. They, they've completed all the separation from faults and they have all the good qualities such as the ten powers, the four fearlessnesses, the eighteen unshared qualities of a Buddha and so forth. Okay, and all the fruitional good qualities such as the thirty-two major and minor marks and so forth is called completely radiant Buddha ground. Okay. So a Buddha, they're always talking about, you know, abandonment and realization. So the Buddhas abandon everything that has been, that's to be abandoned and realized all the good qualities limitlessly that are to be realized. Okay. And Nagarjuna's precious garland says, the ground of Buddhahood is different, being in all ways inconceivable. So for us limited beings to think of what a Buddha's mind is like is extremely difficult. And when they uh, study it in the monasteries, there are so many debates about it. And it's very frustrating because you really want to understand how a Buddha sees things. And it doesn't seem right. You can't do it this way. You can't do it that way. And then you realize, well, that's because it's inconceivable to my limited limited mind that is dealing with the kind of gross conceptions that I have. Yeah. 
So don't get so frustrated when you can't understand what it's like to be a Buddha. (laughs) Its boundless extent is merely said to encompass the ten powers. Each of a Buddha's powers is immeasurable too, like the limitless number of all migrators. So the number of all migrators is limitless. The Buddha's powers are limitless. And the Buddhas also have the 32 major and 80 minor marks. Those are the marks of a great uh, human being, which the Buddha in the, uh, you know, in the form body has those, and the, um, the emanation body especially. The limitlessness of a Buddha's qualities is said to be like that of space, earth, water, fire, and wind in all directions. So if you go out in space, you never reach an end, do you? So a Buddha's qualities are like that. So the divisions, in general, there are many divisions of Buddha bodies, such as uh, you can divide it into five, four, three. Yeah. But when these divisions are condensed, they are condensed into two, the truth body and the form body. So the truth body is called the fulfillment of one's own purposes and the form body, which is the fulfillment of other purposes. So the truth body is referring here to the omniscient mind of the Buddha and the empty nature of the mind of the Buddha. Both of those form the truth body. And that's called the fulfillment of one's own purposes because that is the complete full development of yourself as a person. You can't go beyond having the truth body and the omniscient mind. Okay? So when we talk, you know, about aims and goals and so on in Buddhism, we do have our own purposes and we do have our aims. And so this is the fulfillment of it because we've developed ourselves completely and abandon everything completely. And then the form body is called the fulfillment of others' purposes because it's through the various form bodies that a Buddha is able to communicate with sentient beings. The tr- with the truth body alone, we can't communicate with other sentient beings because, like I was just saying, a Buddha's mind is inconceivable, you know? So we can't communicate directly like that. So the Buddha manifests has all these form bodies that then teach us and guide us and set role models for us and challenge us and do all these different things. Okay? So this is because the two, the complete enjoyment body, in other words, the Sampokakaya, I've taken to uh, translate that as the resource body because uh, that body of the Buddha is a resource for sentient beings. Okay. and the emanation body. So the two of those, the resource body and the emanation body, they form the form body. Okay, So those two which make up the excellent form body. That is the imprint of having completed the collection of merit. I better, well this, I better start at the beginning of the sentence. This is because the two, the complete enjoyment body and the emanation body, which make up the form body, that is the imprint of having completed the two collections of merit, are the conventional body, which is the fulfillment of others' purposes, and the two, the nature body and wisdom truth body, which make up the excellent truth body, that is the imprint of having completed the collection of wisdom, are the ultimate body, which is the fulfillment of one's own purposes. One sentence. Okay, so the resource body and emanation body 
for, together form the form body. The form body is the result of the accumulation of merit. Okay, we talk of the two accumulations of merit and wisdom. It's the result of the accumulation of merit. And it's also the conventional body because that's the one that appears, you know, in the world with conventional living beings and so on. And it's also the fulfillment of other purposes because that's the different kinds of bodies through which a Buddha communicates with other living beings. Okay, And then, on the other hand, you have the nature body and the wisdom truth body, and those two together make up the excellent truth body. That is, the imprinter is the result of having completed the collection of wisdom. Okay, So Buddha's mind and the empty nature, the Buddha's mind, which you know is completely purified, is the result of the collection of wisdom. And that's the ultimate body. Yeah, um, because it's dwelling in the understanding of emptiness 24-7. And it's the fulfillment of our own purposes because it's the completion, it's our full development as, as a living being. Yes? I was just wrestling with the, um, I thought that nature truth body, the wisdom truth body was actually conventional phenomenon. It is, but it's called the wisdom truth body because only emptiness is an ultimate phenomena. But here we're not talking about conventional ultimate phenomena. We're talking about the wisdom, the wisdom truth body, which is together with the with the with its own emptiness. Yeah. So that you have the ultimate truth and the ultimate mind that's perceiving the ultimate truth. Okay. okay. So moreover, Nagarjuna's precious garland says, the form body of a Buddha arises from the collection of merit. The body of truth, in brief, O king, is born from the collection of wisdom. And then also, Nagarjuna's 60 stanzas of reasoning says, by virtue, by this virtue, may all beings complete the collections of merit and wisdom and attain the two excellent bodies which arise from merit and wisdom. Does that verse sound familiar? Yes. Mm-hmm. yes, we we say it every day, don't we? Yes. Yeah. So this is what it's talking about. Yeah. The, when you complete the collection of merit and wisdom, then the results are the form body and the truth body, res- respectively. And Maitreya's sublime continuum of the great vehicle says, the ultimate body, the fulfillment of one's own purpose, and the conventional body, the fulfillment of others' purposes, which depend on that. So just, again, talking about how there's two bodies here. And in such passages, the Buddha's bodies are set forth in many Mahayana scriptures and their commentaries. So all four bodies or if you divide it into five bodies or two bodies or three bodies all these bodies are attained simultaneously it's not that you get one and then later you get the others you get all of them simultaneously and it's happening from going from the Vajra like stabilization at the at the end of the the tenth ground so it's the last moment of being a sentient being from that Vajra-like stabilization, when you remove the subtle, small, cognitive obscurations, then that liberated ground is your first uh, moment of full awakening. 
the first moment of the Buddha ground. Okay, so at that moment, then you have the wisdom truth body, the omniscient mind of the Buddha. You have the nature truth body, which is the purification of the emptiness of that mind that is free from all obscurations. Okay, and if you do actually, if you take the, the that nature truth body and divide it into two, you'll have the emptiness of the Buddha's mind and the true cessations of the Buddha's mind. So that's how you sometimes get five bodies. Then at the same time, you also get the form body. So you get the resource body or the, or the sambhokakaya, and each Buddha has one of those, and it abides in the pure abode, the pure land. And that is uh, the body through which a Buddha uh, teaches all the Arya Bodhisattvas. Okay, so Arya Bodhisattvas go to this uh, Akanista pure land and receive teachings from the Buddhas there. And they're appearing in that, um, you know, in the, re- the form of the resource body. Okay, and at the same time, then you actualize the emanation body, and there can be many, many emanation bodies, because the Buddha spontaneously, without thinking about it, without having to exert any effort or anything, just when there's a way to manifest to be of the benefits for sentient beings, then a Buddha just does that, yeah, and appears in this emanation body. So among emanation bodies, you have um, the supreme emanation body, that's like the wheel-turning Buddhas like Shakyamuni Buddha, you have when the Buddha manifests as artisans or, you know, different other sentient beings who are going to tame living beings. And then another kind where they can even manifest as physical objects, as blankets or bridges or whatever, for people who have created the karma to receive those things. And the Buddha can manifest as those things. Okay, so that's the emanation body of the Buddha. And that's the body that for us, you know, very, very gross, you know, limited beings, that's the one that we communicate with. And that's why we have so much devotion to Shakyamuni Buddha, because without him appearing, we wouldn't have learned the the Dharma at all. You know, so it's really through the, the force of that emanation body you know, and the Buddha appearing like that and then putting up with the rest of us that, you know, the Dharma teacher, teachings exist. And then, of course, all the people who kept the tradition alive for 26 centuries. Yeah. Okay, then the mode of actualizing the effect. Whether one is definite in the Mahayana lineage from the very beginning or even is temporally definite in the fundamental vehicle lineage, it is definite that in the end, entering into the Mahayana path, one must become fully purified as a Buddha. So whether you uh, start out and enter freshly into the Mahayana path or whether you go through the fundamental vehicle path first and become an arhat, eventually you have to enter the Mahayana path and progress through all of its paths and grounds and become a a fully enlightened Buddha. Therefore, whichever of those one is, initially one settles through infinite reasonings, the very subtle selflessness having two aspects, the selflessness of persons and phenomena. So that's one thing that you have to really do at the beginning, is settle the view, get the, gain the correct view of emptiness. 
Then one practices the Mahayana paths completely without separating from the branches of familiarizing with just that view, whereby one progresses serially over the grounds of engagement through, engagement through belief and the grounds of bodhisattva superiors. So by improving your understanding of emptiness, you know, first getting, first learning it, getting a correct inference, then direct, you know, perception, and of course in there uniting it with, with serenity, then you go from the paths of belief, which are the path of accumulation, path of preparation, through the Arya Bodhisattva grounds to the, uh, the Buddha ground. One abandons without remainder the pre, the latencies for mistaken dualistic appearance, is what kind, what kind of obscuration is that? The latencies for mistaken dualistic appearance. Cognitive obscuration. Okay, and you obs- you abandon that by means of the vajra-like meditative stabilization that is the exalted wisdom at the end of the continuum of the ten grounds. So that's what I was just talking about. Thus, in the next moment, one actualizes the truth body which perceives directly all the limitless instances of object of knowledge, like a wet olive placed in the palm of your hand. I don't know why the olive has to be wet, and I don't know why it's an olive. But the Buddha, they say, whatever exists in the universe, the Buddha sees it as clearly as we see what's in the palm of our hand. Okay? So this is a special... Um, and then from the Mahayana viewpoint, the Buddha sees all existent phenomena, ultimate and conventional, simultaneously, yeah, without any effort. In the, in the Pali tradition, they say the Buddha is omniscient, but he has to turn his mind to different things to know them. It isn't all, always present, so there's a difference in assertions there. Okay, so this seeing all these limitless objects is done with the wisdom truth body and the suchness which is the reality of the exalted mind possessing the two purities having become of one taste like water placed in water. Okay, so the mind possessing the two purities. When the the mind has the two purities, the natural purity, which is the emptiness of of inherent existence, and then what they call the adventitious purity, which is the true cessation, the cessations of all the defilements and their latencies and so on. So Buddha's mind has those two purities. It's, It's free from true existence from the beginning, and then now it has the true cessation because it's free of all the the various obscurations. And that nature body of the mind, the the purity of the emptiness of the mind, is one taste, completely one nature, with the wisdom truth body, because it's the nature of that wisdom truth body, which is the omniscient mind of the Buddha. And that wisdom truth body that is perceiving its own nature is like water mixed with water, in that the wisdom truth body is perceiving the nature truth body non-dualistically okay so it's not like the Buddha sitting there going I'm perceiving my own nature <laughs> you know the, the Buddha is all the time in that meditative equipoise on emptiness and at the same time can see all the conventional phenomena as clearly as we look at what's in the palm of our hand Okay. So when you think, why does it take so long to be a Buddha, to create the causes for Buddha? When you think of like having a mind like this, 
this is pretty exceptional. It's going to take a while. <laughs> yeah? Why, why do we expect that it's going to happen real, you know, quick, cheap, and easy? Yeah? Simultaneous with actualizing that truth body, the adamantine body of mental nature of the person at the end of the continuum of the ten grounds, which has the aspect of being adorned by the major and minor marks, becomes a complete enjoyment body, which is not different in entity from the wisdom truth body and the continuum of which is not severed even for a moment until space is consumed. So what that means is that simultaneous with realizing, you know, that omniscient mind that is, uh, you know, indifferentiable from its own emptiness and true cessation, you receive the, um, the, uh, the two form bodies, okay, the form body, that, and that is in the aspect of, with, with the, um, the, the um, major and minor signs, Okay, so the 32 major signs of a great person, the eight minor ones. So that's the, the form that the Buddha is appearing in with those different aspects. And that is the complete enjoyment body which exists in the Pure Land, which is going to teach Bodhisattvas. And it is not different in entity from that wisdom truth body. So the body and the mind of the Buddha are not different entities. Our body and mind are different entities. Okay, a Buddha's body and mind are not different entities. They're one nature. Okay, and the continuum of the the um, this complete enjoyment body, which has the 32 and the 80 marks, is not severed even for a moment until space is consumed. So there's always this resource truth body. I mean, always this resource body that is teaching bodhisattvas and which, from which the emanation bodies manifest. Okay, so that exists forever. From every pore of this complete enjoyment body, there will there always arise numberless emanation bodies. Okay, so you know when we're doing our practices and you self-generate and you're chenmezi and you're sending out the light through all the pores of your body or when you're imagining the Buddha in front pouring the light into you, this is all relating to this, you know, training your mind to think, you know, when you self-generate, I can make all these manifestations just like a Buddha that I'm sending out to sentient beings. Okay, so it's setting the seeds to actually be able to do that later on. These make displays uninterruptedly as long as the sky remains. So the Buddha, from the, um, the resource body, emanation bodies, just keep radiating effortlessly, uninterruptedly, as long as space exists for the sake of migrators with inconceivable sport of exalted body, speech, and mind, exactly in accordance with the constituents' thought and dormancies tendencies it should be of migrators so for as long as space endures and as long as sentient beings remain okay the buddha is saying i too will abide for the benefit of of the world because that you know uh, resource body is just emanating 
bodies all the time going out to all sentient beings in whatever direction they exist. And they guide and teach sentient beings in, in accordance with sentient beings' dispositions and temperaments and interests and everything. So the Buddha knows exactly what to do to guide us and lead us in the right direction. Okay? The thing is, we have to be open to the Buddhist guidance. Yeah, so often we aren't. But we're trying, that's why we purify and accumulate merit to make ourselves open. It is said that the place of actual initial full purification by means of the system of the Mahayana perfection vehicle is only the glorious, heavenly adorned, highest pure land. And the place of displaying later the mode of purification is the desire of well. So the Buddha attains enlightenment in the highest pure land and then emanates all these bodies in the desire realm. With respect to where initial buddhification, that's a great word, buddhification occurs, Chandakenti's supplement to Nagarjuna's treatise on the Middle Way says, just as the moon in a stainless, this isn't right, just as the stainless moon illuminates clearly all migrators, so you strove repeatedly on the prior ground at producing the ten powers of Buddhahood. And in the highest pure land you gain that supreme pacification, the sake the state for which for the sake of which you strove, the unparalleled completion of all good qualities. Okay, so that's just putting it in verse form. With respect to the mode of actualizing the truth body, Chandrakirti's supplement says, through having burned completely the dry fuel of objects of knowledge, this piece of the truth body of conquerors, this piece is the truth body of conquerors. It is then without production and without cessation, and thus the mind has stopped, whereby this rank of Buddhahood is actualized by the complete enjoyment body. Okay, so... With respect to the mode of actualizing the complete enjoyment body, Chandakirti supplement says, the body of peace manifests like a wish-granting tree and like a wish-fulfilling gem is non-conceptual. Until migrators are released, it remains for the world's fortune. It appears to those bodhisattvas free from the elaborations. So that that, uh, resource body is always there. With respect to the modes of actualizing the emanation body, Chandrakirti's supplement says, again, you having the immovable truth body comes to the three existences, in other words, desire, form, and formless realms, and with emanations come from the joyous land, that's Tushita, where the Buddha was, you know, before he appeared on earth and became a wheel-turning Buddha, she come from the joyous land, are born and teach the wheel of peaceful enlightenment. In that way, you compassionately lead to nirvana all worldly beings, having varieties of behavior and bound by bonds of many bonds of, I think that should be attachment, not attainment. Okay. So there it's talking about the Buddha's emanation body appearing, you know, Shakyamuni Buddha and teaching and so on. Now we have etymologies. Since the etymologies of the names of individual grounds have been expressed on the occasion of each one, here is the general etymology of ground. There is a reason for calling the Mahayana path of seeing and so forth grounds. This is because the Sanskrit original of ground 
is Bumi. And, uh, and in terms of a contextual etymology, in the context of the mode of eliminating faults, a ground serves as a basis of releasing numberless sentient beings from the frights of the two obscurations. And in the context of the mode of achieving good qualities, a ground is the basis of good qualities increasing higher and higher, whereby it is called such. Okay. So what it means is that it's called ground because it's the basis of purifying the basis of releasing numberless sentient beings from the two obscurations and because it's the basis of developing all the good qualities. Okay, And then Maitreya's ornament for the Mahayana Sutra says, because of ascending higher in those numberless levels and for the sake of numberless beings becoming fearless, they are called grounds. And then the concluding verse so I want to finish tonight, so that's why we're going fast. Um, the liberation story of the supreme white swans of conqueror's children who greatly moved the broad wings of method and wisdom in order to be refreshed in the lotus lake of the qualities of one thus gone is the heart spring of all those fortunate ones wanting liberation. That the groups of right hearers and solitary realizers, wearied by the path of cyclic existence, having rested for a while in the city of thorough peace, are led to the park of the precious supreme vehicle, is the mag magical artifice of the leader, the captain. In the expanse of black clouds of my mind, in the midnight of the degenerate age, the flashing for a moment of the illumination of good explanation, through the brief lightning streak of a virtuous mind is the expression of the ceaseless, exalted activity of the conqueror. Mm. That last verse is saying, you know, in the darkness of my samsaric mind, any virtuous thought is an expression of what the Buddha is doing. Because it's only through the Buddha's actions that we come to know even how to create a virtuous thought. Beautiful, isn't it? Okay, so then we always start at the beginning a little bit to create the cause to uh, do it again. So, uh, so this is the brief expression of the presentation of the grounds and paths of the three vehicles according to the system of the perfection vehicle Essence of the Ocean of Profound Meaning by Losang da, uh, Dayang and was translated by Jules Levinson. And the expression of worship says, I bow down to the three, uh, conqueror and the conqueror's children. The conqueror, the supreme Shakya, the son of propounders, the excellent regent Maitreya, the unconquered venerable protector, and Manjushri gathering into one the wisdom of all conquerors. So those three are the three that are in the front of our meditation hall who came to the Abbey before we even had a building. People donated those tankas and the statue before we had anything, the Buddhists came. So we're expressing our reverence and our gratitude to the Buddha. So, um, the next four Thursdays, I'm going to be in Madison um, receiving teachings from Geshe Zopa. So, you guys have a com 
a quiz to go through, and then you'll go through it each. You'll you know do what you've done on the the other evenings, uh, taking turns, and then going through the questions. So, did you print out copies? Then we'll send you printed them out. Okay. Okay, and I have extra copies because I also printed them out too. Okay, and the people who are listening online, um, please email the office office.shavasti at gmail.com, and uh, Zopa will send you the quiz. So for the next four Thursdays, you'll be doing this quiz and really going over this whole last section that we did. And then when I get back, what we'll do is one section from the uh, Mind and Awareness text about seven... Um, seven... They don't, that's not a good term. They sometimes say seven ways of knowing, but that's not a good translation. Seven types of cognition. Okay? We'll be doing that. It's a short text about the seven types of cognition. And together with that, we'll be learning about the different objects. You know, appearing object, apprehended object, these kinds of things. Um, and the, the reason I'm teaching that now is because it'll be like a, a fairly short thing. And I also want to go through all the different divisions of phenomena that we have. You know, the, the existence and, you know, and the three types of impermanent phenomena and these kinds of things. Because to use all of that as a background, and then we'll do the tenet text. Okay, but the more you know about some of these other things first, then the easier it's going to be when we do the tenants. Okay. Good. <laughs> so, we all managed to get through this text, even though those of you at the beginning were going, what in the world is she talking about? <laughs> And you actually managed to figure out something, didn't you? And learn something and understand something. Because you persevered. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, you had a question? So what we just discussed today, entering into this ground of Buddha, but that's not what took place under the Bodhi tree for Shakyamuni. Your question. So there are different ways of looking at the Buddha's enlightenment, okay? In the Pali tradition, they look at it as the Buddha, when he was born, was a bodhisattva, and then practiced very hard and went from the path of preparation all the way through to Buddhahood in that very life under the Bodhi tree. From the Mahayana perspective, they say the Buddha was already enlightened before, but appeared as an ordinary being in order to show through the example of his life what we need to do. Okay? So there's two different ways of, of looking at the Buddha. And you don't need to think of them as contradictory. Think of both of them as um, because they can both inspire you in different ways. Okay? <laughs> Chew on that one. <laughs> okay. Good. Let's dedicate.